I've got my prayer book here with me, my prayer guide. I must confess I got behind one day this week, and then the following day I just caught up again, and I wasn't going to feel guilty over it uh, uh, because I reckon, you know, sometimes, you know, you're doing really well, and then we miss something, and the devil comes in and tries to condemn us. And, and my argument is, look, we're doing better than what we think we are. Um, and there's already more prayer going on uh, than what might have been before. And so don't let the devil push you down over one day or two days of getting missed. And if you can't catch up, just carry on, all right? Just pick it up again. Uh, praise God. All right, let's pray and let's commit our time to the Lord as uh, God wants to speak to us again through the teaching and the preaching of the word. Heavenly Father, we come at this time with an anticipation in our heart that, Lord, you are unfolding uh, and uncovering truth. Lord, that revelation comes into each and every one of our hearts, a greater understanding of who you are and, Lord, your plan and your purpose for our lives. We want to thank you, Father, for our 40 days uh, of prayer campaign. Lord, we want to thank you, Father, for our prayer guides. We want to thank you for our uh, God time that we've been having uh, in our small group time together and also our Sunday uh, services, Lord, and learning about prayer and learning about you. And so, Father, we commit this time to you and we do ask, Lord, and we say, speak to us this morning uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. uh, we have a lot of ground to cover uh, today, so uh, uh, kind of thinking it probably feels to me like uh, more lecturing, like in Bible college. Uh, this message today is part of the series uh, of messages that Pastor Rick Warren has put together, and I've sort of taken one of those messages and I guess put my, my thumbprint on it. But uh, just to, uh, as a starting point, to remind ourselves that this is the third Sunday in our campaign, what we call our 40 Days of Prayer campaign. And by the way, it's not too late to jump on board now. Uh, it's better jumping on board uh, partway into it than not getting on board at all. Because it really is a very life-changing experience. Uh, the title of this morning's message is Praying in Five Dimensions. Praying in Five Dimensions. And uh, just to explain what that might mean, uh, I'm reminded that uh, in the late 70s, uh, uh, Pastor David Yonge Cho wrote a book called The Fourth Dimension. Some of you have read the book. How many of you have read the book, The Fourth Dimension? Just a wonderful book where he, uh, he talks about the kingdom of, of faith that we're in, and he talks about the kingdom and, and faith being like the fourth dimension. That was back in the late 70s where, you know, generally it was understood that there are three dimensions and whatever they are. I'm not a scientist uh, uh, and I'm not a mathematician, uh, but you know, in, in, uh, in geometry, they talk about uh, if you take a blank piece of paper and you draw one line, then you've got one dimension, and then you add another line across, so you now got a length and you got a breadth, uh, or a width if you like, then you've got two dimensions. And you add another line upward, uh, now you've got a cube, now you've got space, you've got the third dimension. Uh, and then, of course, in the science world, they talk about several dimensions that I would not, in the remotest, be able to uh, <laughs> understand and, and explain because this is, I'm not a scientist. But today, we want to use those concepts of, the, of dimensions to, to uh, uncover some of the truths that I believe are very important for us to understand when it comes to prayer. Um, and by the way, if you have a chance to get this book, uh, The Fourth Dimension, then uh, I'd encourage you to do so. It's just an excellent book. And Dr. Yonghe Cho, uh, Paul Yonghe Cho, uh, David Yonghe Cho, uh, 
same man, it's just a wonderful man. In fact, he's still alive. He's uh, raised up the largest church in the world uh, with around a million members in the city of Seoul, Korea. And uh, one would assume that what's happening there, if it's all genuine, for those of you that have been watching the news, uh, that, uh, you know, with the potential reconciliation between the North and South, it is due to the prayers. Let me tell you, it is due to the prayers that are saints. It's not for the, for the trying of politicians because they've been trying for a long time. But praise God, you know, for God raising up the right people at the right time. So anyway, before we talk about praying in five dimensions, uh, uh, let me just uh, talk a little bit about uh, God. And before I do that, sometimes people say, well, uh, I'm quite happy to pray at one dimension. I'm just, uh, I'm just asking God for things uh, like one line. It's like, uh, it's Lord, gimme, gimme, gimme. Uh, my name is Jimmy and I'll take all that you can give me. Uh, but how many of you know that God wants us to be more creative when it comes to prayer. And God wants us to have a, a, a broader understanding to pray in other dimensions, just in a one line. Uh, at least allow God to speak back so we got two lines. At least we got two dimensions. Uh, but anyway, let me talk about God, first of all. Uh, some foundational understandings uh, when it comes to prayer and understanding God. Number one, and it's in your outline there, but God is a multi-dimensional God. God is a multi-dimensional God. God is not just uh, a one-dimensional or a two-dimensional God. You see, God created all the dimensions there are. So he must be himself uh, a multi-dimensional God. And in fact, he's in every dimension and he's above every dimension. And uh, friend, let me just uh, encourage you with this thought. When we're talking about 40 days of prayer, the effectiveness of our prayers and the fulfillment in prayers does not so much come from learning about prayer only, but it comes from learning about God and his character, getting to know God better. And then we've got a much better deal going on because we have an intimacy with God that we have not had before. So this is a, a very important aspect. Uh, we're talking about God being multidimensional. And uh, A, in letter A, in your outline there, we see that God is multidimensional in God's creation. Sometimes people say, well, what about people that never read the Bible and to learn about these things? Simply looking at God's creation, we learn some things about God. Uh, you know, the Bible speaks about uh, different dimensions. Uh, of course, uh, we live in the natural. That's one dimension. Uh, and uh, there is uh, another dimension that is not visible. It's called the spirit realm. And many people don't even believe in, in, that, in that realm, in that dimension. But it very much exists. In fact, the natural realm has actually come from the spirit realm. So we're talking about different realms and we're talking about different dimensions. God lives in the spirit realm. And God invades our realm each time we invite him to do so. Um, and uh, here the Bible speaks about the visible creation that God has created and that we see and that we live in. In Romans chapter 1 verse 20, it says, For since the creation of the world, uh, God's invisible qualities, his eter eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen. Have been clearly seen. Since the world has been created, the visible world shows the invisible qualities of God. It says, being understood by what has been made, so that people are without excuse. 
People say, you know, when they get to the end of their life and, and uh, they say, well, uh, uh, God, you, 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 you can't send me to hell now because uh, uh, I, I never had a Bible and I never had the chance to read a Bible. God says you were able to see even by looking at creation alone that there is a creator because if there is a creation, there's also a creator. And God is stirring hearts everywhere. God is stirring every single heart on the face of the earth. So that people turn from being kind of uh, oblivious to, to spiritual truth, begin to seek after God. And God is kind of sort of hooking into hearts and to draw people towards himself. The tragedy is not everybody responds to that drawing. So when we look at creation, we know uh, several things immediately. We know that God is all-powerful because look what he's created. Scientists now talk about the universe that it, that just, it says it goes on and on and on. It's just, it's just incredible. It's just amazing. God likes diversity. God is uh, amazingly creative and the diversity that we see around us uh, in terms of colors and, and in the animal plant uh, world, in the plant world, even people look around and people look at the diversity. All shapes and sizes and colors and straight hair, curly hair and everything in between. God absolutely uh, loves diversity. But, but God or who God really loves is human beings. Because God made human beings, God made us, God made people the pinnacle of his creation. You know, it's been said that it takes more faith to believe in evolution than it believes, uh, than it, what, what it takes to believe in creation. Evolution is a kind of a convenient way of trying to explain God away. Because if there is no God, I'm not responsible to him. But it's easier to believe in God than it is uh, to not believe in God. Imagine if you walk through a forest and, uh, uh, you know, it could be a pine forest and suddenly come across an oak tree and say, oh, I wonder if this is an accident or if this is designed. Well, it could be an accident. Or you walk through the forest and, and, and there's all trees standing up and one's falling down. You might think, well, that's probably an accident. And it probably was. Uh, it probably was. But if you walk through the forest and you're on a, on on, on some sort of walking in some direction, and you look down and you see a Rolex watch. You can't say that that's an accident. That's, that, that immediately points to some design. Somebody had to think this thing through, and, and somebody had to think of a purpose of making a timepiece and how the whole thing was going to integrate and interrelate all the individual parts to give us the time, and not only that, but to look good. And uh, I haven't got a Rolex, and I don't particularly want one. It's neither here nor there. But what I'm saying is as soon as you see design, you immediately think designer. Somebody has sat down, and even if these parts had all come together by accident, which is in itself is possible, but they would never assemble themselves by accident, would they? They would never do that. Look at the complexity of creation. Look at the complexity of human beings. Come on now. Somebody give me a break. It's like it's all Big Bang. Big Bang what? <laughs> Ooh. In Job chapter 11, verse 7, says, do you think that you can explain the mysteries of God? Do you think that you can draw a diagram God Almighty? 
Because here is one of Job's comforters speaking to Job to kind of give him a hard time. And, and at least, you know, Job believed in God. But even if somebody didn't believe in God and tried to explain God away, do you think you can do that? Do you think you're really all that clever and all that smart? You know, it seems to me that, that the more clever people become and the more clever science becomes, the more dense they become spiritually. Uh, because you see that spirit realm that we talked about before, that dimension is kind of hardly covered. You know, in the medical profession, they know when somebody has, you know, a life-threatening disease, if they've got some spiritual values there, it helps them. So they would perhaps acknowledge that, but, you know, it's almost like, you know, religion, uh, you know, is like that, uh, that thing that becomes like a crutch uh, for people to just help them through life a little bit. But God's not a crutch. God is the Almighty that has created us. And he wants us to look to him, and very shortly we'll get into the detail of it. Verse 8 says, God is far higher than you can imagine. Speaking about height now, it's speaking about like a, one of the dimensions. It says, far deeper than you can comprehend. Uh, so we're now talking height, we're talking depth. It's stretching further. We're now talking about length. It says, stretching further than the earth's horizon, far wider than the endless ocean. And this is one human being speaking to another human being. Sometimes in terms of everything there is, we even lack the vocabulary to be able to explain. Paul, when he came back from having been to heaven, says, some things I can't talk about. He says, I'm not permitted to talk about it, and I'm not even able to talk about it because even the very words fail me to describe something of what's going on in that particular dimension, in that particular realm. So one of Job's comforters said to Job, he says, do you think you can make a drawing of God? Do you think you've got him fully figured out? We should certainly seek God and try to understand him better, but we will never be able to fathom God fully. It'll take us throughout eternity that every day we look at God once we're in heaven. Uh, and this is if people make a, an effort to get there uh, by receiving Jesus. Each time we look, each day we look at God as like a new revelation, a new facet about God that we've just discovered. So God is multidimensional because creation shows the complexities um, and everything. So therefore God must be more complex than the creation. And this is, uh, we are talking about realms and dimensions that we see and that the Bible speaks about. There could be other things going on that we don't know about. And so uh, there's another way that we see God's multidimensional nature and let it be, we see it in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We're talking about God the Father. We're now talking about God the Son. You see, God came to earth to become a human being. Incarnation means become flesh, become a human being. And here in John chapter 1 verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh, or the Word became a human and lived among us. Verse 1, just to give some, some context understanding here, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's reference to the second member of the Trinity. And God the Word left heaven, came to earth, and became a human being. And His name is Jesus Christ. The glory that belongs to the only Son of the Father, and He was full of grace 
and truth. Now that's significant, and I wish we had more time to drill down into that. But you see, when Jesus came, he was, uh, Christ came, he wasn't full of law and truth, but he was full of grace and truth. The religious leaders of the day, they were full of laws and, and commandments and, and, and truth, if, you know, to whatever extent that they understood it. But Jesus came, he was full of grace and full of truth. And he's still like that today. Jesus is not about rules and regulations He's about grace that he has extended towards us so we can spend eternity in heaven. Revelation chapter 1 verse 4, it says, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Speaking about past, present, and future. Jesus too is multidimensional. He was in the past, he is right now, and he is to come in the future. Bible speaks about a second coming. See, Jesus is neither bound by time or space. Why not? Because he's God. He was bound by time and space when he became a human being in his human body, but he's now in his glorified body, and he's just able to move freely in and out. Just amazing. You know, when the disciples were together, uh, and Jesus had been crucified, and when he rose from the dead, he just walked through the wall, and he came into their midst. And... Uh, and he had lunch with them. It's like a body that's able to walk through walls, but it's able to have lunch. And when he walked back out through the wall, I wonder whether, whether the lunch stayed behind or not. You know, sometimes you kind of wonder how sometimes my mind thinks, you know. <laughs> Jesus, did you take your lunch with you? <laughs> Jesus himself is multidimensional. And not only that, but the Holy Spirit is also multidimensional. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're talking about the Trinity, all in themselves being multi-dimensional. They're not locked in. In letter C, we see the multi-dimensional aspect of God by how the Holy Spirit moves. It's interesting when uh, Jesus was talking uh, to the people there in John chapter 3, verse 8, and he's, he's saying, he says, you know well how the wind blows this way and that. You hear it's rustling through the trees, but you have no idea where it comes from or where it's headed next. That's the way it is with everyone born from above, by the wind of God, the Spirit of God. You see, the Spirit of God moves in a way, and, and it's like he uh, it moves here and then he moves there, and we can't always tell immediately that he, because he's here right now, he's going to be there next. We just need to stay in, this, in, the, in, the, in the stream, uh, just stay in the flow. He's saying you can't put the Holy Spirit into a box. You can't control him. He's multidimensional. The whole Trinity is multidimensional. And leading on to the second main point then is because God is multidimensional, it means that we are never alone. Never alone. Because God is in every dimension at the same time. He was in my past, He's in my present, and He absolutely will be in my future. God's in heaven and God's on the earth. He's in the spirit world, and he's in your world, and he's in my world. God is in every dimension all the time. There's no such thing of being away from God, truly. In Psalm 139, 
Here's the psalmist dialoguing with God and he's speaking about the, what we call the omnipresence of God, meaning that God is absolutely everywhere. And he says, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. People haven't thought about that, but God is literally everywhere. Now, his manifest presence isn't everywhere. He doesn't manifest everywhere, but God is everywhere at the same time. If I take my wings of the morning, verse 9, and dwell in the outermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. When people say, oh, I got so far away from God, and oh, I was just so far away from God. Well, you might have moved away from God, but God hasn't moved away from you. I just remember a number of years ago, a dear lady that's no longer with us today, she went to heaven, uh, but she's a wonderful Christian, and, but she did end up backsliding, and she says, oh, I don't know what it is. She says, I'm not, uh, I'm not in a good place with God, but God brings people to me. And, and she says, I lead them to the Lord, and, and they ask me for prayer, but I'm not with God right now, but, but God was with her. That even in a backslidden state, God was still with her and still using her, and sadly, and I suppose that's the thing, when people do get away from God, and suddenly it opens the door to tragic things and something tragic happened and she was like forced off the earth so to speak and uh, and but praise God she went to heaven and uh, uh, I considered it a privilege to officiate at her funeral because she was just a wonderful person even in a backslidden state uh, and so people say oh I'm so far away from God but Frank God is still with you God is still with you so Frank never tried to hide from God because wherever you go to, to try to hide from God, God's already there before you get there. I think I'm going to go over here to hide from God. God's already there. And I come back and God's here. God's absolutely everywhere. What does that mean? Uh, in terms of fact, let me read verse 11 and verse 12 of, again, Psalm 139. He says, If I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night, but even in darkness I cannot hide from you. To you, the night shines as bright as the day. Friend, just because we've got trouble seeing at nighttime without light, God's got no trouble seeing at nighttime. <laughs> darkness doesn't mean anything to God. <laughs> he says, darkness and light are the same to you. So this is amazing. This is just amazing. So what does all of that mean then when we're talking about prayer? That it means that since God is everywhere, he's in the past, he's in the present, he's in the future. He's in every dimension of the world. And even in the dimensions that we don't know about. So it means that when, when we talk to God about any dimension, he fully understands it. In fact, he understands it better than what we do. Sometimes people think, oh, I'm having such a hard time. I wonder if God knows. And listen, I'm not trying to belittle anything. Sometimes people go through some dark hours and days and sometimes weeks and months, uh, just difficult times. People say, I wonder if God knows. God knows. God absolutely knows everything. And is trying to draw you closer to him. Because when we get closer to God, he helps us to sort things out. So, um, because God is multidimensional, 
We don't just want to pray in one direction. So we're now going to talk about those five dimensions that we employ when it comes to prayer. So this is now a list of five things. Number one, we look backwards to the cross of Calvary. Friends, when we start praying... Let's just say, we say, okay, we, we have a situation now where we, we, we want to pray or we, we feel we need to pray or we have a need or we just want to draw near to God, not because we want to ask for anything, but we just want to be with God. Number one, we look back to the cross. We don't start with our problems uh, of today. We don't start with our fears or apprehensions about tomorrow, but we want to start with what's happened in the past 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on the cross, when he paid the price and the penalty for our sins. That is absolutely a good place to start because it means we start with thanksgiving. We start with gratitude. We start with an attitude of gratitude. And here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, it says, You know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life. Who was that ransom? It was Jesus Christ himself. He says, You inherited, he says, that empty life from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold and silver, which lose their value. In, in other words, the, the ransom that was paid wasn't paid with coins, with paper money, with electronic money, or gold or silver, or any of these precious things, if they are precious. It says, But verse 19, it was paid with the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. Friends, let's never forget why we are saved. Let's never forget what Jesus Christ has done. And uh, interesting, when we have communion together uh, and we share the emblems, which won't be happening today, but whenever it does happen, Jesus says, as often as you, as you drink of this cup and you eat of this bread, he says, do this in remembrance of me. Do this remembering what I've done for you on the cross. So that's the first dimension when we're talking about prayer. Speaking about the precious blood of Christ. You know, somebody said once, uh, how can you tell uh, what the value is of something? How much does something cost? Uh, and sometimes the buyer says, I want to sell this thing and I want that much money for it. But ultimately, friend, the value is only determined by what somebody is prepared to pay for it. You know, like, we know that on places like Trade Me, you know, stuff goes up and many things are never sold because the, the, the seller thinks it's worth this much, but there's no buyer. So in other words, the value is not really realistic. But the question we should ask is, how much are you worth? How much am I worth? Because it's determined by the value of what was paid through Jesus' death on the cross. He shed his own blood to pay the price uh, to pay for the penalty of our sins. He took it all on himself. Just amazing. So what that means is that, uh, that in terms of the first dimension when we pray, remind ourselves that Jesus died for us on the cross, that we have value in God's eyes. It's no good coming to God saying, oh, God, I'm just a worm, and I'm not really worth anything, and I'm just no good, you know, like in all of that religious lingo that may sound good. There may be an aspect of, oh, well, that sounds like really, really good, but in the light of what's really happened, it doesn't sound good at all because Jesus didn't die for a bunch of worms. He died for people. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but if ever 
lasting life. So that's the first thing we do. That's the first dimension. Maybe pray. We look back 2,000 years ago. In fact, it's all recorded for us in the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John speaks about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then number two, the second dimension, we look upward into the loving face of our heavenly Father. This is important, friends. Pay real close attention. It could change your prayer life drastically. It could bring a radical transformation into your life. You see, after we've looked back to the cross, we now look up into the face of our loving heavenly Father. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 says this. It says, For let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help when we need it most. So when we come to God, when we need him most, God doesn't look at us with judgment in his eyes, but God looks at us with grace in his eyes. God looks at us smiling. God looks at us with a loving look when we need it most. When do we need God most? Well, when we've messed up somewhere, you know, like the very time when people think, oh, I felt God and surely he's angry with me now. That's the very time when we need God most and when we come to him and we look up. We come to the throne of grace to obtain mercy not judgment, to find grace to help, not a put down or whatever else. He says that is the very time when we need to come to him, and that's exactly what we find. We find the face of a loving, gracious, heavenly father. In Luke chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, disciples came to Jesus. It says, he came to pass when Jesus was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. Because John the Baptist was a, also a praying man, and he had disciples, and he taught his guys how to pray, but it's Old Testament. And uh, they said to Jesus, well, Lord, why don't you teach us how to pray? Verse 2, so he said to them, when you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That was absolutely radical. That was absolutely groundbreaking. Because in the Old Testament, they didn't know God as Father. They knew him as Almighty God. They knew him as their provider. They knew him as their healer. They knew him as various other things, as their shepherd and various other things. And these aspects are all important and, and necessary to understand. But Jesus started a new train. He said, look, this is a new ball game now. It's almost like we're in a new dimension. This is the New Testament now. We're not longer operating like you did in the Old Testament. He says, from here on, I want you to call God your heavenly Father. It's amazing. Our Father in heaven. And in John 5 verse 18, uh, it says, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath. You know, Jesus broke one of the rules, you know. So we need to kill him. He broke one of the rules. You can soon find, uh, you know, recognize a religious spirit when somebody has done something wrong and people get down on them. Because he was breaking the Sabbath. But he was even calling God his own father. Making himself equal with God. There's a very powerful truth in here, friends. 
when we call God our Father, we're affirming that we're equal with God in terms of our family connection. We're obviously not God. You know, we're obviously not God. But we're equal with God in the sense that we're in the same family that he has adopted us into. And friends, the way that we see God will control our prayer life more than any other thing in our life. What is our view of God? The way we see God determines whether our prayers will be fruitful, whether they will be fulfilling, whether we want to pray or like, oh, this is just so hard. It's like I'm praying into something that's not seen or towards somebody that's not seen, but when we develop that uh, close relationship with our Heavenly Father. You know, it's not wrong to call God Lord, but Jesus says, call him Father. It's a much more intimate term. So I'd encourage you to look at that area in your prayer life and, uh, and what do you say when you start out? Because this is the pattern of prayer that we're going to get into in some future weeks and there'll be plenty of teaching uh, to further detail in our small group curriculum there. But, but, but it's saying, Heavenly Father, I usually say Heavenly Father or Father and then launch into my prayers this way. Because why? That's what Jesus told us to do. In Romans chapter 8, verse 15, Paul said, For you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. And now we call him Abba, Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. You see, when we get born again, and we'll touch on that a bit more, but Jesus Christ comes to live on the inside of us. The Holy Spirit comes to live on the inside of us. And when we then pray and and we call out to God, Abba, Father, the Holy Spirit on the inside of us witnesses to our spirit that this is a good thing to do and that this is a right thing to do, that we don't grovel grovel to God. We don't look down like... uh, Fearful slaves thinking we might get whipped or something, but we come to God with our head held high. We don't come brash. It's not about brashness, but we come boldly. Because the Bible says, let us come boldly before the throne of grace. And remember, here is our boldness. We don't come in our own righteousness. We come in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's where our boldness lies. Sometimes people struggle with ongoing condemn, condemning feeling. Oh, I just forever feel condemned. Get a revelation of the righteousness of God and your days of feeling condemned are over. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. He says, don't act like fearful, cowering slaves. And don't even necessarily use slave and master language like, you know, master, can I have this? Can I have that? Say, our Father in heaven. We don't have some distant relationship, some sort of official deal going on. We've got a very intimate family relationship where God's adopted us into his family. And it says over in 1 John, 2 John, it says, Behold what manner of love 
the Father has bestowed upon us that now we are called the children of God. Now. We're not going to be when we get to heaven, but now, my friend, if you're born again, you're called a child of God. and God wants you to call him Heavenly Father. Abba is a term of endearment. It's out of the Aramaic language, the root word of, of that, of that uh, term, Abba. And by the way, Abba is not the rock group from Sweden that used to be around when some of us were a bit younger. It's like, uh, you know, Abba is, uh, is, is Daddy God. Abba. So when you teach a young child and, and you teach him to say Daddy, sometimes even saying Dada, Dada, just using the most basic word for the l smallest of child to be able to imitate, even if they don't get it quite right in terms of the pronunciation, God's happy with that. Abba, Father. We'll touch on that a little bit more in just a moment, but uh, the third area or should I say three areas, uh, sub-points if you like, three areas that are important when we're talking about prayer, uh, where you know, when we look up to God and, and, and so forth and look into his loving face. Uh, point number one there, God wants our prayers to be personal. Don't use the these and thous and thouest and mayest and canest. Uh, it's like, the, you don't use any of those words. It's, Father, I come to you and, you know, just use family language, personal. Jesus modeled this kind of prayer here in Mark chapter 14. Um, in verse 32, it says, They went to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And Jesus says, Sit here while I go and pray. This is now just before Jesus is betrayed and captured and then carted off and tried and whipped and used and abused. And then they hung him on the cross, he says. And he took Peter and James and John with him. And he became deeply troubled and distressed. And he told them, he says, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Why was that? Because he knew who he was. And he knew what he was about to face. He knew he was the Messiah. He knew he was the deliverer that the Old Testament spoke about. He absolutely had a revelation that each one of those prophecies in the Old Testament was all about him. And he knew. He had read Isaiah chapter 53, which describes the suffering that he would have to go through. And he knew that was but hours away. He says, stay here and keep watch with me. And he went a little further and he fell to the ground. And he prayed uh, that if it were possible, the awful hour awaiting him might pass by him. Verse 36, he says, Abba, Father, he cried out. Everything is possible with you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet not what I, uh, rather, yet I want you all to be done, not mine. It's like, Daddy God, I'm not looking forward to this. And if it were possible, take this cup away. I really don't, don't want to go through this now. But, but I will if you want me to. And, and, and I'll force my will to, to align with your will. And that's basically what he was saying. But he didn't say, thou, you know, thou almighty God or Jehovah. He says, Abba, Father. What a relationship we see there. And that's exactly what he modeled to his disciples. In Vine's Expository Dictionary, which a lot of ministers use to kind of get a greater understanding of biblical text, 
It speaks about the word Abba. And it says Abba is the word framed by the lips of infants and betokens unreasoning trust. When a little child lies in the arms of a father or of a mother and looks up, they're not concerned that you're going to now about to drop them. They just look at you with an unreasoning trust. And that's, the word, that's what's built into that word here, Abba. And then father, the word father, because he did say Abba, father. The word father expresses an intelligent apprehension of the relationship that we have with him. So we're not only small children where we say Abba, but we also call him father with an understanding of what that really means. Many of you here, many of you men are fathers and what you are to your children. You're a number of things to your children. You're the rock in the family. You're the one, and together with, with mother, together with your wife, you, you, you are the stability in their lives. You are their provider. When they hurt themselves, they come to you and, and you just, you know, like with little skin, uh, uh, knees that have been, you know, bruised and skinned or something, you just kiss the pain away and suddenly it's gone. It's just amazing what you're able to do as a father. There's multiple verb pictures in here that we could describe that whole relationship. You see, uh, it furthermore it goes on to say that the two, the word Abba and Father, they together express the love and the intelligent confidence of the child. And finally, it says that slaves were forbidden to address the head of the family by this title. Slaves were not allowed to call the head, the, the head of the family Abba, Father. They had to call him Master. So friend, you're not a slave. You're a son. You're a daughter. Let's employ that term in our prayers and do that from here on forwards if you haven't done that before. Heavenly Father or my Father or our Father. Then secondly, God wants our prayers to be passionate. And the word there is that, that Jesus cried out. Now, of course, Jesus was in incredible distress at this point in time. But let me read you here in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. It says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. See, adopted into God's family. Adoption as sons. Not slaves, but adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your heart, crying out, Abba, Father. Crying out, not kind of whispering or, or, or kind of monotonous, uh, Abba, Father. He says, crying out, Abba, Father. So what he's saying is, add some emotion into your prayers. Put your heart into it. Uh, don't just read off of a page a pre-typed prayer. And there's nothing wrong with pre-typed prayers, but, but put your heart into it. That's what he's saying. So therefore, our prayers, in order to function on all dimensions, so to speak, they shouldn't be tepid or unenthusiastic, but they should be passionate. James uh, chapter 5 puts it this way in verse 16. It says, confess your sins one to another or your trespasses and pray for one another that you may be healed. And here it is, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Sometimes the fervency of it 
kind of tells that our heart is engaged. We're not just praying out of our head. Everybody all right with that? The third area, God wants our prayers to be in partnership with the Holy Spirit. And Romans chapter 8 verse 26 describes that very well. It says in the same way, by our faith, the Holy Spirit helps us with our daily problems and in our praying. We don't even know what we should pray for, nor how we should pray, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with such feeling that it cannot be expressed in words. And you know, I find this many times, it's like, uh, gosh, something going on here. I don't know what's going on. I don't even know how to pray. Uh, how do I pray? What do I say? But you know, when we got baptized with the Holy Spirit and we received the gift of speaking in other tongues, that, pray, that heavenly prayer language, it's a Holy Spirit-inspired words that are being spoken through a Holy Spirit-inspired language that is totally in line with the will of God. When I pray in tongues, when you pray in tongues, we don't understand what we are saying, but we know one thing. We're praying the perfect will of God for that situation because in all reality, we're so limited in many situations because we only know what we know and what we see and what we might have been told. And there's many other facets going on, but God knows everything. And you see, at the very first time when uh, the early believers got baptized with the Holy Spirit, on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2 speaks about it. It says they all began to speak in tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance or as the Holy Spirit gave them words. You see, we do the speaking, but the Holy Spirit gives us the words. And the Holy Spirit knows what's going on in any given situation. Sometimes I just say, Lord, I commit this situation to you. Uh, and, and, and then I just swing into tongues and I just pray in tongues. And I just know, I just know, based on what we read in the Word of God, that I'm now praying, praying the perfect will of God. Because if we're limited to English or limited to our native language, whatever that might be, uh, uh, we are truly limited. But when we pray in tongues, we are truly unlimited when it comes to praying into situations and praying for problems or against problems or for people or against uh, situations and so forth. So the Holy Spirit helps us. And here in verse 27, this is out of the Living Bible, it says, And the Father who knows all hearts knows, of course, what the Spirit is saying as he pleads for us in harmony with God's own will. In one translation there, it speaks about not just words, it speaks about groanings which cannot be uttered in kind of, a, in, in, in a, in a kind of an intelligent language. So sometimes in praying in tongues, there's even a kind of a sense of like, oh, you know, you kind of reach deep into your spirit and sometimes it is a groaning and, and, and uh, it is the Holy Spirit praying through us. But friend, if your mouth and my mouth get shut, the Holy Spirit doesn't pray for us at that moment because he wants to pray through us. Because the Father needs to hear those prayers and the Father knows what's going on and he needs to hear the right words and he knows that we are so limited. And that's why in one translation it says he helps our weaknesses. What is our weakness? The, our weakness is we don't really know all that much. <laughs> Some we look at a situation or we hear something, all we, we, we know is what, what's visible and what we've heard, but there's many more facets uh, to every situation and uh, 
Sometimes it's only our viewpoint, that's all it is. But God knows everything in every situation. So again, after we have uh, taken care of the first dimension, when we start praying, we look back to the cross, we look up to, uh, into the face of our Heavenly Father. Point number three, we now look inward to Jesus and to his righteousness on the inside of us. See, when we become Christians, when we get born again, Jesus comes to take up residence on the inside of us. He comes to live in us. The Bible says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And not only that, but, but God puts the righteousness of Jesus on the inside of us. How many of you know that Jesus never committed a single sin ever? So therefore, he's 100% righteous. And in fact, uh, let's lead up to that here in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Christ lives in me. That's what it's telling us here. And in 2 Corinthians 5.21, and this is like, like you know, if you ever want to find a, a, a verse that's worth memorizing, it's this one here. <laughs> I memorized that scripture, and I confessed it, and I meditated in the early days of my Christianity because I come out of a religious setting, out of a religious environment, and there was more law than grace, and it was a kind of a lopsided sort of a story told, and gosh, this really helped me here. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For God took the sinless Christ and put into him our sins, and then in exchange, he put God's goodness or righteousness into us. You see, when you got born again, when I got born again, that was the moment of the great exchange. That all the sins had already been laid on Jesus 2,000 years ago on the cross. But now that we are born again, all of God's righteousness is poured into us. Like, like fill it up with a bucket and pour it on the inside of us. So when we pray, that's why I said before, we don't come and we don't grovel. Bible says we come boldly before the throne of grace. Why can't we come boldly? Because we don't come in our own righteousness. You see, we have not committed righteousness. We try to live a good life, but we have not committed righteousness. We were given righteousness. Righteousness is a free gift. Remember though, but Christ only lives on the inside of us if we have invited him in. That's why part of, of our sharing good news with other people, even during these 40 days uh, of prayer, that we're reaching out to people that don't know Christ. We are inviting them to, to look at this truth and to hear this truth so that they too can invite Christ in because if they haven't invited him in, he, he's not in there. And when we invite him in, the uh, Bible speaks about the Spirit of Christ, but it says those who don't have the Spirit of Christ, they're none of his or not yet. But because Christ lives on the inside of us once we have invited him in and surrendered our life to him, because of that, we are unconditionally accepted by our Father. Unconditionally. The agape love of God attaches no conditions. And in all reality, 
when we come before the throne of grace, and we looked at that scripture earlier on, uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, we come before the throne of grace. And our prayers not only start with, with saying our Father, to move into the presence of the Father, but we also ended with, with saying in Jesus' name. And what that means is when we come before God, God doesn't see our righteousness because we got none. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. So it's, it's like if Jesus were to go into the, to the throne of grace and the Father giving something to him because Jesus asked for it, it's like you and me going into the presence of God. So we are unconditionally accepted by our Father. And you know what that does amongst other things? It gives us the freedom and the liberty to like be real honest with ourselves and to be real honest with God and to own up to our faults and to our mistakes and to our failings and our shortcomings. You know, when we look on the inside of us and we're thrilled about Christ living on the inside of us, and that's usually what we say, you know, like we say Christ lives in me and we put our hand on our chest, so to speak. We don't, we don't put our hand on our head and say Christ lives in me because Christ doesn't per se live in our head. He lives in our heart. He lives in our spirit. But then absolutely Christ's thoughts fill our whole being. You see, the Bible says we have the mind of Christ. We begin to think like Christ. We, we have the wisdom of God. It's all the outworking of what we are discussing here today. Because Christ lives on the inside of us and we have his righteousness that we have received as a free gift. We see that, but we not only see that, but we see other things that we're not so excited about. We see faults. Sometimes we have bad attitudes. And sometimes people say, oh, you know, these sinners, these horrible people, you know, the murderers and the bank robbers and the rapists, you know, all these nasty, horrible people. Listen, just a bad attitude and judging somebody is as bad as all of that in God's eyes, really, when it all comes down to it. That's why in the book of Proverbs it says that there's six things, six things, six, I start again. I start again and then my mouth will start working properly. Six sins, yes, seven, that are an abomination to God. And one of those is a proud look, looking at somebody and judging them in our eyes. So we see that on the inside of us as well. And we're like real honest. We say, God, um, I've, I've said things I shouldn't have said. Lord, I've carried an attitude towards somebody that I shouldn't carry. It's not right. Uh, uh, and, and Lord, uh, I've even got unforgiveness towards somebody that's hurt me. I got bad memories, I got hurtful uh, thoughts, uh, Lord uh, 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 let, let's do a little housekeeping here, and God helps us to do a little housekeeping, to get all of this bad stuff out want it, it all cleared out and that begins the moment when we're born again that begins the moment when we join in with other brothers and sisters in fellowship and we, we join a local church and we journey with other brothers and sisters around the common vision and we get into a small group and we, we become authentic uh, and, and, and live, in a sense, even a, a life that's vulnerable before others to say, look, I haven't got it all together. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine and test and evaluate your own selves to see whether you're holding to your faith and showing the proper fruits of it. I made reference before to when we take communion. And Jesus says, do this in, in remembrance of me. We look back. That's the first dimension. We look back to the cross. 
But also in there, it speaks about examine yourselves. When, when you're about to partake of, of, the, of the bread uh, and, and, and of, of this cup here, he says, examine yourselves. Because if you don't examine yourselves and, and, and things are not right before God and God's put his finger on something and, 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 and you're somehow resisting God in this area, it's not good, he says. Uh, in fact, Paul said to the Corinthians, he says, for this reason, he says, some of you, he says, you've got major deals going on and you're unwilling to repent of it. He says, for this reason, some of you are sickly and, and some of you have even died early. People sometimes don't realize this, that uh, in this whole aspect of the grace of God, there's the grace there for us to repent of thing, things and get it out of our lives so it does not hinder us moving forward. Proverbs 28 verse 13, it says, You will never succeed in life if you try to hide your sins. Confess them and give them up. Then God will show mercy to you. So God already knows what we need to work on. In fact, we don't figure this, these things out ourselves. Sometimes people are quite oblivious to errors in their own lives. But that's where we got the Holy Spirit. He helps us. Because Jesus is in there. He says, come on now. Let, let's address this issue. Let, let's get that anger out. Let, let's get that resentment out. Let's, let's deal with that fear and don't let it bind you anymore. Let, let, let's deal with that greediness uh, and let, let's, let's uh, start to develop a generous spirit here. And, and, and so the Holy Spirit is like right there and he helps us with all of these areas. And of course the question would be asked then is like, okay, once if you get all of this stuff out, what, what does it all get replaced with? Well, it says here, it says, test yourselves. In fact, uh, uh, still 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5, examine, test, and evaluate your own selves to see whether you're holding to your faith and showing the proper fruits of it. Showing the proper fruits of it. What fruits are they? Well, they are obviously living a repentant life, but the Bible speaks about the fruit of the Spirit, such as love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, perseverance, goodness, faithfulness. Here in Galatians 5.22, the Bible lists nine fruit of the Spirit. It says the spiritual nature, verse 22, produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. You know, the Bible speaks about nine gifts of the Spirit and it speaks about nine fruit of the Spirit. And I tell our Bible college students, I say, look, absolutely, desire the spiritual gifts. And, but in the end, when we have the spiritual gifts and we operate in them, it's actually the fruit that qualifies us to operate in the gifts. Because otherwise, the, friends, the gifts can be misused. I'm not, it's saying, never saying it's one or the other, it's both. So what are these nine fruit of the Spirit that we've just listed here? They are the perfect picture of Christ on the inside of us. When we operate in the nine fruit, people see Christ in us, the hope of glory. And you know, we say, Lord, uh, Father, help me to produce this fruit and help me to, to wean off of, you know, dysfunctional behavior and stroppiness and anger and who knows whatever is sometimes going on. Show me how I can change. And when you see each time when we, we do our pra daily prayer guides and we open uh, the, 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 the guide and we read that scripture there, that feeds our spirit. 
That's one of the good things about having a daily time with God. It feeds our spirit daily so that the spirit gets stronger and it can suppress the flesh that wants to rear its head, the old nature that wants to come in and hold on. Then number four, we move on and we've now looked uh, back to the cross of Christ. We looked up into the face of our loving Heavenly Father. We've looked on the inside of us where Christ dwells and where we have the gift of righteousness. And now we look around us and we ask the Holy Spirit to use us. You see, friends, when we're born again, and even prior to that, God's placed gifts and talents into our lives. And now that we're born again, God wants everything like used for his glory. And when the Holy Spirit comes into our life, you know, things that we might have done good before, we're now doing better. And there's now new gifts that are flowing, supernatural abilities that were not there before. And they're not there to make us look good or to, for us to just use in ourselves. But God says, look around and, and ask the Holy Spirit to use you. Because friends, there are needs all around us. There is a dying world that needs to be reached and reached out to and, and things to be done. There's so many gaps in society. You know, government's trying hard to plug all the gaps, but they can never be done. Many things, you know, government, somehow that's how government functions. Like, oh, we've got a problem over here. We need to find some money and throw it at that uh, problem. And sometimes money helps, but money does not answer all things where society is concerned. It needs a local church of strong believers that have a heart and a passion for people to reach out into their community and to provide answers in situations and in areas and to reach people and to be there. So we ask the Holy Spirit to use us. You know, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Jesus got a building program going on and he's looking for laborers. He said to his disciples, he says, look out there, he says, the harvest is like white, uh, ripe as, as, as for harvesting. You know, when you look out over a grain field, initially it's green, but after a while when it gets towards the harvest time, as I said, my father always checked the fields and, and he, he sort of told us what to look for. He says, when, when that grain field out there of that rye that we're growing or that wheat, he says, he says when that starts to turn white, he says, uh, it's only days away before we go out there and we harvest it. And Jesus said, uh, used ex exactly that same expression. He says, the fields are, are white. He says, they're, they're ready, they're ripe. But he says, the laborers are few. Laborers are few. So not only when we get born again, not only are we a son or a daughter, but we're also a laborer. And we offer labor of love. We start to serve God. We use our gifts. We use our talents. We use our time. Most of it, is voluntary labor. But of course, God wants to use us in our vocation, bring a, a, a Christian influence into our company, into our business, into the government department or into this whatever is going on. And if we be a part of a, of, a, you know, of, a, of a social club or a sports club, we bring Christianity into that environment. And for those of you that have uh, children at school and you're part of the parent-teacher association or whatever these things are called, you bring the gospel into that situation and, and you say no to certain things because, gosh, the secular humanists are going hard out to bring all sorts of rubbish and junk in before our children so it needs Christian influence. So we say, God, use me. 
Romans 6, 13, it says, Do not let any part of your bodies become tools of wickedness to be used for sinning, but give yourselves completely to God, every part of you, for you're back from death, and you want to be tools in the hands of God to be used for his good purposes. You know, Rick Warren wrote the book called The Purpose Driven Life rather than The Personality Driven Life or The other-driven life. Is it the purpose-driven? God had a purpose in mind when he created us. You know, like we used that example earlier on of, of somebody designing that Rolex watch or any other watch. They had a purpose in mind. And uh, not like me, I bought myself one of those running watches when I got a little excited over doing some jogging, and uh, um, I like gadgets, and so I bought this thing, and uh, I was all, I was all uh, you know, thrilled with it. And gosh, it tells me where I was and how long I took and what the heartbeat was and everything else. And so one day I went out diving. And uh, somewhere I'd read that, you know, these things uh, are good down to five atmospheres. And I thought, well, I'm not going to dive all that deep today. I will certainly not be down in any, any more than 50 meters. So five atmospheres got to be okay. Well, I took it with me and I came up. It was not okay. <laughs> it was not okay. I've been running out ever since without it because it's no good anymore now. <laughs> I ruined it, didn't I? The pressure cracked the top. And uh, as I said, when I first came up, there was like it was cycling through all the programs, <laughs> going around and around. What had I done? I used it against its design purpose. Now, of course, I've got a, a bone to pick with uh, Garmin, who supplied me with the device, and I've yet, when I get a moment, to write them an email and say, look, you guys, this is really false advertising. So I'm still planning to get something under guarantee, but who knows? In fact, for those of you that are really looking for something to pray about, something unimportant, well, you might like to pray with me on that one and trust God that I get me a new watch so I can be out running again and keep fit. Hallelujah. Everybody all right this morning? Praise God. There's a purpose. God says, you're born again, you have a purpose. Just one short prayer. It's been said that it could be a dangerous prayer to pray because it'll take you places that you've never imagined. Say, God, use me. And suddenly doors open. It's not just a one time. It's like in the morning, Lord, uh, lead me today. Uh, uh, use me for your glory. Lead me to somebody so I can make a difference in somebody's life. You see, God is waiting for our contribution. The world's waiting for our contribution. Our local church is waiting for our contribution. Your pastor is waiting for your contribution. And finally, there's a fifth dimension as we head towards closing. And this is the first closing, and I make no promises. We could have several closings, but this is the first one. Finally, the fifth dimension. We look forward to our future towards the second coming of Jesus Christ. So we look back to the cross. We looked up into the face of our loving Heavenly Father. We looked inwards, number three, where Christ lives and where he's placed his righteousness. Then we look around us and we see needs everywhere and things that God has gifted us for. Even yesterday, I could see it all over again. It's like in our working bee, you know, people gravitate towards what they, what they know to do and what they're good at and somehow, and it's just how it works. And, you know, God has multi-giftedness in the body of Christ. Not everybody's good at everything. In fact, some things we're absolutely no good at at all. But some things we're very good at, and that's the area where God wants to tap into and say, let me use that gift in your life to make a difference 
You know, the Bible speaks about David of old, and it says that he served his generation in his day. And our generation is looking to us to make a difference. And so I'm saying to every generation, we've got several generations represented here. You know, in the soccer game, we call it the youngest and the, the masters now. And, but, but in every generation, even in children's church, we already get the little ones. Just help out a bit. Help a bit here, do this, do that. It's just getting people used to the idea of serving God and serving humanity. So we look forward to the, our future. And, and actually, we look forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we believe that, uh, I personally believe that many, if not most of us, will be alive when Jesus Christ returns. Of course, if I'm wrong, we're going to serve God anyway. You know, but uh, we look forward and this is the time to ask God to help us with our priorities. Lord, help me to prioritize my life. Help me to cut away the useless and the frivolous and the time wasters and the money wasters and the energy wasters. Help me to not think thoughts anymore that wear me out, but help me to think positive thoughts just all around that uh, God is able to tap into our priorities, into our schedule, and to use our gifts and our talents as we look forward uh, into the future. In Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says, I'm convinced and sure of this very thing, that God who has begun a good work in you will continue until the day of Jesus Christ. Right up to the time of his return, developing the good work and perfecting it, bringing it to full completion in you. Even if sometimes we are not all that clear in regards to what needs to be done, but God's clear. And sometimes it's just a step at a time. Sometimes people want everything mapped out and all fully. It's like, you know, Pastor Vanessa and I didn't know when we went to Bible college, we didn't know all the ins and outs. We just, let's just put our foot forward here. We got an opportunity and we got a desire to learn more about God and about his word. And then another step and next minute, like, you know, it's just, it's just, just step at a time. It's a step at a time. And then God, you know, God opens the doors when we sp spend in front of the door. People say, I'm still 200 miles away from the door. I want it to open up so I know to move forward. Let's get a bit closer. <laughs> Moses was standing in front of the Red Sea. Israel is a nation behind him, some two, three million people. And behind them was the Egyptian army. And they were coming after them to recapture them and slaughter many of them and drag the others back into slavery. And Moses looks up and says, oh, God, he says, we've got problems here. You know, I'm kind of paraphrasing. He says, why do you cry out to me? He says, what is that in your hand? He says, take that stick in your hand. That, it's like your gift, Moses. I've given you a gift with this stick. The same stick that he used when he went before Pharaoh and he threw it down and it became a snake and it gobbled up all the other snakes that the magicians were able to use. That same stick, he says, stretch it out. And as he stretched it out, the water's part, but he had to get right up to the water's edge. And sometimes people stand way back here and say, I'm not moving. I'm not moving until everything lines up. And we just step forward. The Bible says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Say, I haven't got a vision. Help somebody else's vision. We're looking for people in our tech room right now. We're looking for people in children's church. We're looking for people in the worship team. We're looking for people in outreach team. There's just so many things to be done. Just... Put your hands to the plow 
let's go for it together. Finally, Psalm 138, verse 8. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Oh, I like that. We're trying to perfect ourselves, but it says, yeah, the Lord will perfect us. The Lord will perfect. It's not perfect right now. Sometimes we look at our lives and at our situations. It's not perfect right now, but, but God's working on it. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Your mercy, O oh Lord, continues forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. And of course, we already know that God will not forsake us. Jesus says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'll be with you always, even to the end of time. And when the end of time comes, it's time to go to heaven. But in the meantime, it's time to be busy. Hallelujah. Praise God. I don't know about you, but uh, I'm encouraged by these truths uh, to kind of uh, be reminded of things uh, uh, when we pray and why we're praying and how do we pray and, and, and what's important when we pray. And we're not praying in our own righteousness. We're praying in the righteousness of Jesus. We're looking back. We're looking out. We're looking within. We're looking around and we're looking forward. And let's employ these concepts and these principles. But first and foremost, if you haven't done so, as we now wrap up, this is the now the final closing. It is my promise. All right, final closing. Start to address God as your heavenly Father, if you haven't done so before. Praise God, you know, for Lord and for all these other terms, but call him heavenly Father. Make that a habit in your life. Uh, that's what Jesus told us to do, and it'll absolutely help you to form a more intimate relationship with God. And uh, so let's just wrap up right now as we pray.